So, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Natural Way of Living. And the subtitle is to live naturally is to live happily and freely. So to introduce the topic, sometimes living naturally is described as living in the countryside, perhaps in a thatched cottage, eating organic food, wearing a heavy home-knit fisherman's pullover, and reading novels or playing board games with the family, as opposed to watching Sky Sports. Now, albeit this has certain attractions, it does not qualify as living naturally because it looks only at the external environment for naturalness. However, to live naturally is not just to live in harmony with external nature, but also to live in harmony with our own true nature. So to live naturally, we must know our true nature and then act in accordance with it. So what then is our true nature? And as has been said in previous talks, there is a universal and individual aspect to our nature. Our universal nature, which is the same in all of us, is that we are consciousness, knowledge and bliss. Pure, perfect and complete. Free, ever peaceful and independent. The source of all love, wisdom and creativity. And to live naturally is then to live in love, with wisdom guiding us, consciously, blissfully, perfectly, in total freedom, independently, and ever at peace with ourselves. So on this basis, we can ask ourselves right now, are we living naturally in relation to our universal nature, or has a modicum of unnaturalness crept into our lives over the years? In relation to our individual nature, every one of us is blessed with certain talents, qualities, attributes, which are what we have to offer the world, and which we came into the world with. And if we are true to our individual nature, there are two outcomes. Firstly, the world is enriched by our existence. That is, the world is a better place for us having come into it. And secondly, our lives as individuals are pervaded by efficiency, lightness, joy in what we do, and satisfaction in our hearts for having lived well. Our lives are not the never-ending search for more, 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 accompanied by a nagging sense of something missing, of something unfulfilled. And rather than this constant search for that happiness which is eluding us, and the feeling that we are somehow an incomplete human being, instead we live our lives in harmony with ourselves and others, expending our already found happiness and extensive array of talents in all that we do and with those we interact with. So again, on this basis, can we say right now that we are living naturally in accordance with our individual nature. So to live unnaturally is to be deprived of our nature 
to be deprived of happiness and fulfillment and peace and freedom. This is a terrible price to pay and it is all totally unnecessary as each and every one of us can live a totally natural life if we wish to. Irrespective of how we have lived to date and the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, if we accept that our lives are to a large degree lived unnaturally, as we have just defined natural living, then the immediate question that faces us is how may we be restored to a natural way of living? Now, the master key, surprisingly, is discipline. The need is for true discipline in our lives. And the example is that if we are overweight or obese, in order for our true weight to be regained, the need is for us to go on a diet, i.e. to eat in a disciplined way. And a diet is not for losing weight, but for losing weight and then maintaining that natural weight for the rest of one's life by continuation of a reasonable diet, a reasonable way of eating. Otherwise, as we know all too much, all the weight that is lost is put back on again very quickly. And likewise, discipline is not a temporary activity, but a way of living, a natural way of living. It does not create a new man or woman, but restores the person to their natural state. Discipline is a systematic approach to getting better, quicker, and natural results. And without a systematic approach to anything, nothing can be achieved. Thus, discipline is essential for everybody. Now, why do we not perceive discipline as attractive? So our hearts may not have leapt with joy when we heard that the key to a natural way of living is discipline. And why is this so? And primarily it is because we have a misunderstanding as to what true discipline is and erroneously see it in a negative light. So let's look at that. Now when we hear the word discipline or the phrase, say, disciplining a child, what thoughts are produced in our minds? If I said that I disciplined one of my children last night, what image comes to your mind? Is it perhaps a stern man, angry with his children? The child perhaps frightened of the parent? Suppression of the child's will? And maybe deprivation of something wanted? So generally speaking, unhappiness all around. On this basis, we can see why the concept of discipline is not so popular. But if we look at it in a different way, and let us see if the following questions can refine and enlarge our understanding, revealing true discipline is totally desirable and remarkably rewarding. So answer the following questions silently in the mind. Would we like to be a disciplined person? Say we secretly overheard some people talking about us and they were saying that we were a very disciplined person. Would we take offence 
and think how dare they and then refuse to invite them around for coffee anymore? Or would we be pleased taking it as a compliment and glad that this was how the world saw us? So would we like to be disciplined with regard to eating or drinking and say sleeping and working and playing? Would we like to be disciplined as regards timekeeping, like turning up on time? When we get out of bed, keeping our word, being emotionally stable, finishing anything we start, being able to attend to what is in front of us. In truth, we would all love to be disciplined. But when it comes to living a disciplined life, some of us can shy away. We fear that being disciplined would restrict our happiness. Yet if we look at the questions put to us, we would all love to be disciplined in the areas mentioned. And it is important to appreciate that true discipline leads to growth of being. It is in fact essential if there is to be growth of being. Ignorant discipline is a form of self-tyranny and true discipline is an expression of self-love. Now discipline is essential for anyone who wishes to be healthy in body, mind and heart. All that brilliance and power which every one of us brought with us into this world is lost without discipline. If a miner is left with great wealth and no discipline, he or she would squander the wealth very quickly. And once the wealth is gone, recollecting it is not easy. And collection is only possible through strength and discipline. Now, we are not trying to apply discipline on ourselves, but are trying to provide discipline to ourselves so that we can enjoy a disciplined life, the life that we wish to enjoy. Applying discipline often is simply a form of punishment, whereas providing ourselves with discipline is helping us to obey the truth within ourselves, to become masters of our own beings, and thus enjoy true and substantial freedom. Now, there are other factors that may have led us to not living disciplined lives and thus natural lives. And I'll just deal with these briefly. Unless there is a desire for improvement, discipline is impossible. So the question we have to face is, do we desire to improve ourselves? The example is, suppose an elephant is trapped in mire. Here, even if he wishes to get out, he cannot for he cannot establish his feet anywhere, and the more he tries, the deeper he goes. Only if there's a little base available can he help himself. And the base in this connection is the desire for improvement. And for many of us, we do not sufficiently desire to put in the necessary work to improve ourselves. So we would like to be slim but not to diet. We would like if someone waved a magic wand and we were suddenly perfect in every way. But work for it, forget it. 
the world will have to love me as I am. The second thing is that without the appreciation of the importance of, or the need for discipline, it's impossible for us. And if I just tell a story about my father, and his lack of discipline, and ultimately his discipline, my father smoked like a trooper, so he smoked those appalling cigarettes, sweet Afton cigarettes, which are designed to give you cancer, lung cancer. Anyway, he used to smoke about 60 a day. And by the time he got to about 40, he desired to give them up. And he tried a hundred times, and he failed a hundred times. And one morning we found him, or I found him actually, lying in the bathroom with blood coming out of his mouth, having coughed his guts up. So anyway, he was brought to the doctor, and the doctor looked him in the eye and said, if you don't give up cigarettes, you will be dead within six months. And he gave them up on the instant. You just need to realize what the need is for discipline, and then all the strength will be yours to enact that discipline. The need needs to arise from within the individual. It cannot be enforced from outside. Now thirdly, we do not know the benefits of a disciplined life. If we did know the full benefits of a disciplined life, we would never wish to be without discipline in any aspect of our lives. And this we shall see later in the talk when we do look at the benefits of true discipline. Another factor is that we think that it is difficult to be disciplined and that we lack the necessary energy or strength to be disciplined. And certainly it does take strength and again, as we shall see later in the talk, with certain practices, and particularly with meditation, we will have the necessary energy and strength to easily live disciplined and thus natural lives. And lastly, we may not have found anything worthwhile to live a disciplined life for. And I may have told this story before, but... I once invited over an educationalist to Ireland to give a program about education. And this man was from India, an outstanding man. And towards the end of the week, I asked him what I thought was a particularly good question, but it, all it produced in him was fits of laughter. I asked him, I said, when you're rearing children, what do you do in order to help them eliminate their faults? I was thinking of my own children when I asked the question. So anyway, he burst into fits of laughter and he said, you never have to work on your faults. Nobody has to work on their faults. What you have to do is to find out for what reason did you come into this world. And for that reason, you will give up all your weaknesses and all your faults. And he used the example of Gandhi. He said, Gandhi was a, a weak man until he found out the purpose of his life. And for that purpose, he gave up all his weaknesses and became a truly disciplined human being. Now, life can be lived with little or no discipline, or else under false discipline, or under true discipline. And little or no discipline is simply licentiousness, where anything goes. And false discipline is hard or extreme discipline, and ultimately is destructive. So we look at these in turn. 
So firstly, life with little or no discipline. Now, it is not discipline that bothers people. It is the lack of it that bothers people. And if you don't believe this, try living without any discipline for a week. And you will be very soon seeking to reintroduce discipline into your life. You know the way sometimes when teenagers or young people move out of the home into an apartment and say you get four young people and they move into an apartment they say freedom at last, right? As they start singing Negro spirituals to themselves, freedom at last. And they don't want any discipline or rules or regulations. But within a week of absolute chaos, they begin to introduce rules and regulations and disciplines. And so they say, well, you bring out the bins and you do this and you do that. And slowly but surely, they introduce reasonable disciplines into their lives. Lack of discipline leads to frustration and ultimately self-loathing. Without discipline, life is full of regrets. And when there is little or no discipline, then all the natural energy of the human being is lost. He becomes the stereotypical couch potato. He becomes less and less capable of undertaking any form of action, like the seriously obese person confined to bed. Life shrinks and shrinks until it is reduced to little more than sleeping and eating, a never-ending pursuit of petty pleasures. And in the words of Shakespeare, a beast and no more. To live according to like and dislike is self-imposed tyranny. The good is not the pleasurable. As Thomas Jefferson said, do not bite at the bait of pleasure till you know there is no hook in it. With lack of discipline comes lack of control. and Then we're no longer free men and women. If we see somebody with uncontrollable movements of their body, a natural sympathy arises. However, look at our minds and hearts when there is little or no discipline. They are both out of control. Can we tell our minds to attend, and they do attend? Are our hearts to stop worrying, or not to be angry, and they obey? Well, without discipline, there is no control. And so how can we naturally direct our lives to true happiness, freedom and peace? Then there is life under false discipline. So false discipline could properly be described as self-cruelty or self-harm, even if it is undertaken for the best of reasons. It has the element of harshness or extremity to it. I was in a gym about two or three months ago and pumping iron, as they say, with slight degrees of nausea rising in me as I attempted to live heavier and heavier weights. But anyway, a conversation began beside me. Now, this man looked an awful lot better than I looked, I have to admit. So he was a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but not as extreme. And anyway, he was having a conversation with a friend of his, and basically they were discussing how they built up their bodies. So he said to his friend that he ate 20 eggs every day, just before he went to bed, right? 
that brought my gym session to an immediate end. <laughs> I went to the gents and vomited. The way of the human being is the middle way, which is the natural way. Whenever an idea is strongly identified with, then it becomes a fixation. It will have the characteristics of consistency and control, as with true discipline, but it will lack the right measure. It may even confer short-term benefits, but ultimately it will be harmful. One result is that the lack of balance or measure must lead to neglect elsewhere in other aspects of life. So, for example, the very hard worker who neglects family and home. So, what is true discipline? Well, true discipline is saying no to misery, dependency, vice, disgrace, etc., it is saying yes to happiness, freedom, virtue, integrity, etc. We may think it is saying no to more of the good and pleasurable, but it's not. It actually ensures that we can really enjoy the good and the pleasurable. Discipline teaches us to live by principle and not by desire. As Edmund Burke said, it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. So a disciplined life is simply a life of self-mastery. When disciplined, we are in control of ourselves. And thus we can direct our lives to the fulfilment of our true and substantial happiness. Self-respect or self-pride is the root of discipline. With the ability to say no to your lower self comes a growing sense of dignity. As Plato said, the first and best victory is to conquer yourself. So conquer your habits or they will conquer you. The word for freedom in Sanskrit, which is said to be the original language of man, is Swatantra, which is a compound of Swa and Tantra. And Swa means self, and Tantra means discipline. A free man is one who is self-disciplined. And self-discipline means that all those activities that are not useful to our true self whether physical, intellectual, or emotional, are controlled by ourselves and not by someone else. Without discipline, we cannot control our minds and pleasantly walk to death. With discipline comes measure, and with measure we use our body, mind, and heart properly and usefully. Attention given to the world of the senses is brought to moderation, that is, that it's measured neither excess nor deprivation. And we learn to discriminate in order to provide that which is necessary and not provide that which is unnecessary to a natural way of living. With discipline we establish a measure that is just right for spiritual development. And whatever is useful and good for our true self 
is accepted and put into practice. And if something is pleasant, but it's not useful for our true self, then it is rejected. And agriculture is a good analogy for what is required to establish a disciplined life. In farming, the field is prepared by clearing and preparing the soil. Fertilizers are applied to make the soil more productive and then the seed is sown. When germination takes place, new shoots spring up, but many weeds also grow and they grow faster than the crop. The farmer pulls out the weeds so that his crop can grow properly. Later on, a few more little weeds will come up, but they are stifled by the strength of the crop. And in the analogy, the fertilizers are all that are conducive to natural living. That is all that brings out the best in us. The weeds are all the attachments that are unnatural to the true human condition. And the action of weeding is the application of true disciplines to eliminate that which is not helpful and allow our true nature to flourish and grow strong. Now, albeit our true self is limitless consciousness, knowledge and bliss, our physical, mental and emotional bodies are limited and therefore they cause us frustration. They hinder our ability to enjoy our limitless self. And all disciplines are aimed at eliminating all the unnatural excess agitation and dullness in our bodies, minds and hearts. And if we take to discipline, we can transcend the limitations of our human instrument. With true discipline, our being is refined. In relation to children, discipline is something you do for a child, not something you do to a child. True discipline is not external compulsion, but something that ensures inner strength. It creates a force so that the individual who has forgotten the natural and proper way of living can correct his deviation from it. And this discipline is to put us on the right track so that we can rise step by step to achieve the purpose for which we were created. Real discipline empowers us to meet all aspects of our lives, the practical and the spiritual. And at the start, discipline can appear difficult and restricting, and this may cause us to resist practicing discipline. But this is not reason to water it down. When discipline is mature, it feels natural, it becomes easy, and no discomfort is experienced, and any sense of doing disappears, just like breathing. And what needs to be remembered is that the transitional period is short. The period in which you establish discipline is short. But the actual beneficial active period is long. For once you establish discipline, you have it for life. And when discipline is established, we can move freely in the creation without getting attached to this or that. Discipline is the naturalization of our true nature 
And so with a disciplined life, we are simply being faithful to ourselves. So let us remember that true discipline allows us to move freely, for our true nature to be naturalized, to be true or faithful to ourselves, and to enjoy peace or freedom from agitation in body, mind and heart. So what are the benefits of the disciplined or natural life? To create any permanent result, there must always be a system that is true discipline. And one must go through the system with proper steps to get the required result. In this world, we cannot get anything without working for it. Lower temperaments are wild and powerful, and they need self-control through education and discipline. Our nature is refined and beautified only by control and systematic practice, not by free-for-all tendencies. Discipline makes us a beautiful person living a beautiful life. The Buddha said, to enjoy good health, to bring true happiness to one's family, to bring peace to all, one must first discipline and control one's own mind. If a man can control his mind, he can find the way to enlightenment and all wisdom and virtue will naturally come to him. So as said before, discipline is useful for both worldly living and for the spiritual life. Our intellect becomes mature and is able to judge the usefulness of every thought, concept or principle and to accept whatever is useful to natural living, leaving the rest. And when the intellect has become pure, then all external and internal influences are properly analysed and made use of. Our new thoughts can be created to overcome difficulties or to make further progress to the realisation of our true self while still in this body. And with growth of self-discipline, the latent powers of our self manifest. And this provides confidence and clarity and we begin to act freely with natural measure. When sensory pleasures, temporary gains, future profit dominate our actions, then we are not free but dependent, for we will have no sense of measure. And the person who has developed the capacity to refrain from useless actions and naturally goes for measured and just actions in the light of the self is the free man. His actions do not leave a mark behind to be cleaned later. So this makes us light, and with lightness we feel free. An overloaded boat sinks deeper in the water and moves very slowly. A lighter boat floats freely and moves faster to reach the destination quicker. The meditation and discipline have been given so that we can eliminate all unnecessary activity so that the power of the self, which is available to us, can be channeled into positive actions for better results and improvement of our being. The householder must undertake some discipline 
and hold to it firmly in order to save his capital and prolong its use and if possible pave the way for spiritual development. The creation as we experience it creates such conditions as keep pulling us and forcing us towards one thing or the other. You know when say early in the morning you make a statement like I will never have another biscuit again in my life. And then later in the afternoon you say to the host, do you have any biscuits in the house? And this is the way we are. We're pulled from one extreme to the other. Discipline is designed to stabilize us within these extremes. So discipline provides an order of organization within us that offers various levels of power to sustain these pulls and pushes. And each person must find that balance within the disciplines so that he is neither ill-prepared nor overpowered. And this balance is unique for each individual. So you won't find it in a book. Balance of discipline is like a balanced diet or exercise to keep one fit and trim. And when discipline is mature, we are able to face all the dynamic pushes and pulls of life. Everything in the world exists because it is properly regulated. Everything that we have, body, senses, etc., all have a measure. Even our breath is measured. If you breathe naturally, you will breathe 21,600 times every day. It is absolutely precisely measured. The Shankaracharya, the man that the School of Philosophy put all its questions to, said, if one likes to destroy a thing, there are two ways to do it. Use it faster or do not use it at all. A motor car is designed to give service for a certain number of years or mileage with a range of speed up to 100 miles an hour. It is always recommended to use the car in the medium range only. According to regulations or disciplines, one uses things to their full value. Those who do not find the measure and gear themselves to fast actions are misusing the forces. Although the speed of 100 miles an hour is there, yet one is not expected to use that speed all the time. The extra energies are used to escape dangers only. So it is necessary to find a measure and be contented so that this wonderful body can be used to its last breath in good condition. Just as one needs measure in food and drink, one also needs measure in work. Ignore the measure and burn out your forces. So what are the practical and spiritual benefits of becoming a disciplined human being? Well, the first thing is that you will enjoy outstanding health. Because with discipline comes measure in all things, and with that, health of body, mind and heart. We could not enjoy health in the body without discipline with regard to eating, working, sleeping, etc. We could not enjoy mental health without discipline. So to be able not to think excessively or to be able to attend. And we could not enjoy emotional health without discipline. 
Imagine if we could not control emotions such as anger and jealousy. The second benefit of living a disciplined life is that you will have colossal amounts of energy. Because with discipline we will conserve energy and will thus have extra energy. And with this extra energy and not wasting energy, we will be able to take leadership by taking positions of responsibility and being of real use. It is a characteristic of all great leaders that they sleep very little and they have boundless energy. With this energy we will feel more power and energy within us to tackle everything so our lives will be much larger. Thirdly, we will enjoy pure emotions so with discipline we will be more self-controlled, steadfast, more confident, never disturbed, have a balanced disposition, be patient, and our attention will be acute. We will be more tolerant of situations, be happier, balanced, free from desires, enjoying a sense of freedom, and be very, very peaceful. As regards our work, if we live disciplined lives, it will be refined and better and inspirational to others. It will be more efficient. We will be readily available for more activity and not get involved in unnecessary things. So consider how little we actually achieve compared to how much we wish to. Discipline is the bridge between our goals and what we actually accomplish. It turns talent into ability. As one entertainer said, talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. There's plenty of movement, but you never know if it's going to be forward, backwards or sideways. The fifth benefit of a disciplined life is self-mastery. Because with discipline we will have the facility to enact what we know to be true and will not succumb to either our own erroneous feelings and opinions or to peer pressure. We will be our own man or woman. And sixthly, our lives will have direction. Physically, mentally and emotionally, we will be where we want to be and not have just drifted there or have been driven there unwillingly. With self-mastery or self-control, we will be able to direct our lives to happiness, freedom and peace and thus avoid misery, bondage and agitation. And living a disciplined life, we will li be living naturally. And living naturally, we'll be living efficiently. And living efficiently, we will have the necessary time, strength and energy to discover the truth about ourselves. And this is really how to live naturally, as it was the reason for which we came into this world. So what practices are there which would help us to bring about a truly disciplined life? Now, the need 
for discipline depends on our layers of ignorance, our desire to remove that ignorance, and our readiness to engage in disciplined work with consistency. When there is a hunger for development, each step we take into discipline helps to restore the balance in some degree and provides more energy for further steps along the spiritual journey of life. And before considering individual practices, we first need to understand the nature of spiritual discipline. Worldly discipline is associated with some achievement. But spiritual discipline is different in relation to achievement from the worldly sense. With spiritual discipline, we're not getting anything. But we do try to achieve ungetting all things which are a hindrance to living naturally, to being our true self. Now, one may easily resolve to sacrifice everything, but to put that resolution into practice is difficult without proper understanding of the philosophical reasoning. Possessions are for pleasure, and pleasure comes from external things. But bliss comes from within, and only hindrances get in the way of us experiencing it. It is therefore only a matter of removal of hindrances. Truth, consciousness and bliss arise by themselves. They are not gained. So in summary, worldly discipline is gaining and spiritual discipline is losing. Losing that which hinders us from the enjoyment of our natural self. So, there are seven practices. If you take up any one of these, you will achieve a remarkable degree of discipline and then live a remarkable life. So the first thing to do is to reduce your desires. These are all very easy-peasy, by the way, now. So the first one is you reduce your desires. All desires arise in consciousness. And there's a moment when a desire arises and another when the desire is fulfilled. With ordinary man, this cycle of desires and their fulfillment goes unnoticed. It does not register in the mind. Now, it can be registered if we want it to register. So, when a desire is fulfilled, everyone can see that there's a moment when he or she puts up a new desire. And between these two desires, there's a moment of lack of all desires. And that is the moment to catch. That space between two desires. And by practice, it is possible to extend this moment. Now, why would we want to reduce our desires? And the reason is that consciousness is only consumed through desires. The fewer the desires, the better use of consciousness can be made by us. So our desires should be concentrated. Because the fewer and steadier our desires, the more power we have and the greater facility to fulfill them. 
all the spiritual disciplines given are to lead in this direction. The application of meditation is just one such way to curtail our desires because while you're meditating, it takes you away from your lovely desires. And the extension of the moment of lack of desire between two desires is the other way. So the first discipline is to practice extending the moment of lack of desire. It's a very, very simple thing to do and if you do it, you will be astounded at the increase in energy and the amount of self-discipline that will arise. So for those of you who do meditate, one way to do this is that between the completion of one activity and the commencement of the next, sound the mantra once in the mind. Let it sink into silence. And with your mind, follow the mantra into that silence and then initiate the next activity. So that should take about 15 or 20 seconds. That's all you do to create that space between desires. The second one is you never act against your nature. In Christian teaching it says that when you sin, you sin against yourself. And this is a most unnatural way to live. The Shankaracharya says that everyone knows the right or wrong of any action. So believe it or not, there is never any confusion about whether an action is right or wrong. His following description makes this obvious. He says, in the course of good actions, thoughts and feelings, the body responds naturally, harmoniously, and mind supports them without any worry, distraction or hesitation. Reason supports them with authority, the heart responds openly, the whole being supports them. There is nothing to hide, nothing painful. It is good for the one who does it and for all who are related to it. Happiness prevails. All is agreeable within and without. A bad action, thought or feeling, is that which is concealed, done in the dark, the body is not free, mind does not freely support, reason opposes, heart cries, fear prevails and displeasure is felt within and without. It harms the individual and others, it is bound, limited and heavy and only habit supports such actions. So the second discipline is do not do what you know to be wrong. Do not torture your body, mind and heart with bad actions. And as a second aspect to it, also go with your own bliss, that is with your individual nature. For each one of us, there is that which naturally pleases us and it's different for each one of us. And as it says in the Bible, do not do what you hate. So let your life be full of what you love to do and then it will be a natural life for you. The third discipline is to stay free. 
and you stay free by sacrificing your attachments. So by liberation is meant that our true self is liberated from what burdens us, that is our attachments. When self alone remains, then it shines in its full glory and needs nothing else. Internal and external sacrifice of burdens is required. The worldly possessions that we hoard for continuous and constant pleasure on demand are the subject of external sacrifice. Under ignorance with pleasure comes attachment and with attachment bondage. And as a result, the realization of the ever-free self is hindered. And if we desire to realize ourself, then we will have to sacrifice all our burdens on the way. But it is a gradual process. As Helen Keller said, one painful duty fulfilled makes the next plainer and easier. So do not imagine or try to give up all burdens immediately. Rather give up that which now appears easy to give up. And each time we do give up a burden, it makes us lighter in two ways. It enlightens us and it lightens the burden that we are carrying. Internal sacrifice is equally important because within each of us there is our ego full of valued possessions of love, hate, attachments, desire, anger, greed, pride, prejudice. And these too need to be sacrificed to unload the mind and purify our minds and hearts. Now these subtle possessions are much, much harder to part with than our external possessions. And the ultimate realization is to have nothing else but the self. So everything must go. And never be afraid to sacrifice. For by sacrifice in truth we lose nothing and gain the absolute. Or we lose the partial and gain the all. Or lose ignorance and gain the truth. And as Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. And as a natural method of letting go all attachments, we should learn to not dwell on objects of sense. In an outstanding book called the Bhagavad Gita, it explains this beautifully. It says, when a man dwells on objects of sense, attachment for them arises. From attachment arises desire, and from desire arises wrath, because of the failure to get what we desire. From wrath arises delusion. We cannot tell right from wrong. And from delusion, there's failure of memory, that is, memory of truth. And from failure of memory, there is loss of conscience, that is, understanding of truth. And from loss of conscience, he is utterly ruined. That is, he no longer behaves as man, but is operating at the level of an animal. Therefore, the third practice to establish discipline in our lives is to practice not dwelling on objects of sense. And if you do this, you will go free. The fourth practice 
is full attention. The main feature of spiritual discipline, if you were to take all the spiritual disciplines and examine them one by one, the main feature is the application of attention. The use of the power to attend any work, physical, devotional, or rational. So if we have to dig, we only need to dig with attention, with full attention. The point of attention has it all, for all powers go wherever our attention goes. And if people learn to attend to physical work, then they can easily attend to devotional, intellectual, or spiritual works also. And one way to help us give full attention is to do everything to the highest standard possible. And particularly in relation to the small everyday actions that we do. So listen with both ears to the very last word when someone is speaking to you. Brush the floor as if it was the Taj Mahal. Cook the food as if a most important guest was coming to the house. And sign your name as if you were signing a letter to your beloved. The second aspect of this discipline, which will help us to be free, is to remain as the witness of everything. Witness even your own body, mind and heart. And the key to this is to play the roles that befall you and not to become them. So never, ever, ever become a mother or a father or even worse, an accountant and even worse still, a solicitor. Never, ever, ever become a role that befalls you. Because you are not Irish. You are not male. You are not mother. You are not accountant. You are that consciousness which witnesses them all. The next practice is to meditate. Because meditation is the great cleanser of mind and heart. Often we may find that just as with a healed wound, the scab falls off by itself. So likewise, after meditating for a number of years, that which used to drain us and disturb us no longer does so. And all without any apparent direct efforts on our part to remove them. What happens is that one day you get out of bed in the morning and you suddenly realize that you're no longer an angry man or an angry woman. That anger has subsided in your being. In addition, meditation provides us with the necessary energy and strength to be true to ourselves. So take up the discipline of meditation. Decide that you are a meditator and meditate twice a day without fail for the rest of your life. There is no greater, no more beneficial discipline that you could undertake than meditation. The next discipline is to dedicate all your actions. The Shankaracharya says that we should know for what reason any work is being undertaken. What is the real cause? Is it the self, the ego, the gratification of the senses, 
Is it reaction to something or somebody? Or is it without any reason? And in looking for the real cause, if the work or action does not have a proper cause, we will see that this is so. Now, if work is not for gratification, but for the pleasure of the Absolute, then it becomes pure, and only then is the will of the Absolute enacted. So this discipline is to let all our actions be for the pleasure of the Absolute or for the benefit of the universe. So never live for yourself or for you and yours, but live for all. The next discipline is to be true to your universal nature of consciousness, knowledge and bliss. So refuse to be mechanical, living in a dreamlike world, inexorably moved along by the events of life and allowing them to affect us. Refuse to let ignorance dominate your mind and do not act in accordance with what you know is not true. And finally, refuse to have anything to do with misery. Whenever an opportunity to become miserable presents itself to you, decline the invitation. Just say to it that you're too busy being blissful now to become miserable now. Now these seven practices will allow us to live a naturally free and blissful life. But there's another factor that is important and that is that the essence of discipline is consistency. So just as the laws of the land prevail in every nook and corner, no matter where the law-making body is, similarly discipline must be followed all the time. This means we never abandon discipline by taking a break from it. However, even the same food every day makes one fed up and the digestive system rebels to get something new or stimulating. So occasionally, there may be the need for some stimulation to overcome slackness and stagnation. And it should be deliberately provided to bring us back to discipline with renewed vigour. Accordingly, over a period of time, in order to relieve boredom or a sense of burden, it can be both useful and suitable to bring some novelty into the discipline. We tend to abandon it when it becomes boring, but in order to maintain interest, simply change its form without diluting it. So to conclude, our true nature is consciousness, knowledge and bliss. The disciplines are prescribed only to remove the hindrances to this true nature so that it may express itself fully and naturally. Discipline cleanses all of the mind and heart. And as encouragement to us all, Seneca said, no evil propensity of the human mind is so powerful that it may not be subdued by discipline. Discipline does not create a new spiritual man, but stops his agitation and his dullness which are artificial impositions on his true nature, so that he may have available all that glory of the spiritual world 
which is his own. To avail of our natural glory, we must form a resolve. We must use discipline systematically. We must keep on looking back at our shortcomings and thus keep our gates open to move towards true freedom. Due to ignorance, the individual cannot connect itself to the universal, whereas the disciplined man can. The various disciplines and meditation are prescribed to eliminate separation and bring about connection with the source of all. And in this way, the individual is able to enjoy and use all the universal forces and watch and witness the drama of creation without any effect on himself. Now I'm going to finish by quoting the Shankaracharya and what he has said about discipline because nobody I know can put it better than him. And this is what he says. Discipline is not a long process. It is a way of life. It is a question of understanding in order to find the balance and then maintaining that balance all one's life. Agitation or apathy are what dislodge the balance. Discipline allows one to be oneself or to be at peace. A disciplined person is bright, light and simple. Whatever be the least needed to live, lightly he accepts and leaves all attachments to remain free and therefore limitless. All attractions are stilled. There remains nothing whose loss can pain or whose gain can please. Things may come or go, but leave no mark in his mind and heart. They become still like a lake. A disciplined mind is very peaceful. He desires nothing and yet remains open to help the meek who cannot help themselves. The meaning of discipline is to retain balance and touch nothing. Fullness of discipline ultimately means being faithful in oneself. It is freedom, limitless, waveless and wantless and in perfect balance. When disciplined, we simply move freely. Discipline is a part of spiritual endeavour and through disciplined life comes mastery or independence. The discipline completed with conscious effort becomes natural and then one is not forced to do it but nevertheless one naturally does it. And this is called realization of the self. It does not mean that having completed the course of discipline one will be free of discipline. Although it does not remain binding and compulsory nevertheless it just happens naturally because continuous repetition of disciplined work has now turned into a natural course of one's life. One begins to live discipline freely, blissfully and naturally. And if one does give it up consciously, as if not necessary anymore, then it simply means that discipline has not been completed to become natural. Once it has become natural, there remains no force of duty to perform it, but it is still done step by step naturally 
without any effort, like breathing. In the spiritual realm, the naturalness of discipline gives bliss. Because man is after all spiritual and not mechanical. He is naturally conscious and blissful. His real nature is truly conscious and blissful. And bliss is sought by everyone. And bliss is essential for all. And discipline keeps on providing bliss. Works of the world, when properly done, do provide bliss. And discipline does help to do everything well. With discipline, nothing feels overpowering. Only those who are destitute of discipline are overpowered by the world, the body and the mind. A disciplined man will act any part which is offered to him. He just acts. And when this becomes natural, then every part becomes easy to play. The definition of discipline is the naturalization of true nature. Everyone is the reflection of truth, consciousness and bliss. And this is what has to be naturalized. And discipline makes this possible. There is an ideal. And moving towards that ideal is necessary. And this is the movement from the limited to the unlimited. And for this, discipline is necessary. When discipline would have become natural, then one would be oneself in spite of the natural discipline. And whenever an occasion of non-consciousness, knowledge and bliss happens, the disciplined man's consciousness of consciousness, knowledge and bliss arises and he refuses to go the way unsuitable to consciousness, knowledge and bliss. The wise refuse to go against the nature of truth, consciousness and bliss. And this is neither memory nor ignorance. It is the nature of consciousness and this is realization. So the final instruction of the Shankaracharya to the school was therefore just be natural. Make discipline natural and entertain no doubts. And that's the end of the talk. So, So, what questions would you like to ask? Good evening, Shane. Question, first of all, it needs a bit of clarification. I'm yeah. not sure if I heard what I thought I heard. I thought I heard that the root of discipline is pride. Did I hear that incorrectly? No. Well, that would be a harsh way of putting it and then be open to all sorts of potential misinterpretation. What I think was said was that with discipline comes self-pride or there is self-pride where there is discipline or self-respect or self-pride okay well the question really was rooted in right as being is one of the seven deadly sins yes. so that appeared to be a conflict there is a, a sense of your own dignity or a sense of your own worth which stops you behaving in a, an appalling way or in a way that's less than you so it's in that sense of a, a sense of self-pride so, it is valid to have pride 
in yourself as a human being, for example, and therefore to behave as a human being and not as an animal. And that is absolutely fine. That will help a person to rise up. But it's not the ultimate. It's not the ultimate. So you can go beyond a sense of self-dignity or self-pride. But it's a very good stepping stone. So, for example, you know, a certain self-pride here made sure that I studied for my exams and never failed. Because I just did not want to be looking at people and say, I failed a particular exam. So, at a level, it's useful. It produced a certain endeavour. You get it in a football team. It was a sort of a pride. This Saturday, when Leinster play Claremont Auvergne, there will be a sort of a, a pride of putting on the jersey. You know, people talk about that, putting on a, a Munster jersey or a Leinster jersey or an Irish jersey. And you're representing your people. And there's a certain pride there. And that helps you to apply your best. But if it leads to arrogance and all sorts of things like that, no, that's not useful. So it's in that sense. Okay, so not to prolong this, but is there a... You're very good at clear, defining answers. So yes. Is there a clear, defining definition or a clear line that separates the two? Well, what I would say is anything which helps to elevate you or to raise you up, Use it for so long as it raises you up. When it becomes a limit on you rising any further, then drop it. So, a simple example would be, if you had a broken leg, it's useful to use a crutch. But once the leg is mended, now the crutch gets in the way. So then you drop it. So it's a useful thing. Sometimes you say to somebody, like, are you a man or a mouse? That sort of sense. And you're calling on the person's manhood or womanhood, which helps them rise up from a lower state to a higher state. But once then the person reaches that higher state and that has become naturalized, then that sense of identity will limit it. And then it's useful to drop. So, all I would say is, if you find that by identifying with something greater than your individuality, it helps to bring out the best in you, then utilize that until it becomes your limit. So, if I just give you an example, my son, when he was much younger, was going to America, and he was going through that phase in his life where he drank like a fish. And despite a million philosophical statements to him, which all fell on deaf ears, he continued to drink like a fish. And he was going to America for the summer. And I said to him, you know, the minute you get off that plane and you open your mouth and you say things like 33, they'll know you're from Ireland, right? Now, I said, so whether you like it or not, you are an ambassador for Ireland. And I said, you should represent the best of your country while you're abroad. You should show the greatness of the Irish people and not the lesser aspects of the Irish people. And that did get true, because he told me after he came back that he did behave much better, let's say. But it did get true. He saw himself that he was representing his country. That people would not, let's say he was drunk, people would not say there is a drunken man. They would say there's another drunken Irishman. So that sense of appealing to his a larger identity brought out a better side of him. In that sense, it's useful. I heard a priest saying, to be born a Christian 
is a blessing, but to die one is a tragedy. The idea is that it's a very useful thing, but then you must go beyond Christianity to truth itself, which doesn't have a particular form. So, useful to, instead of identifying as an individual, perhaps to identify as an Irish man or an Irish woman, but not to stop there, go further still and further still. You mention that meditation cleanses mind and heart. You also mention that it frees you of thinking excessively. Now, would you be able to give us a couple of words on fear, irrational fear? You want to develop it or eliminate it? Eliminate it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there are many ways to eliminate fear, different ways to eliminate fear. It can be done with reason, it can be done with love, and it can be done with practice. If reason is strong enough, and love is strong enough, then fear can be eliminated on the instant. I can't give you a particular example in relation to fear, but I give it in relation to something else, where, and again I've told this story before, but a lady once came to me, this is about 20 years ago, and she said, does the school have a way for helping people give up cigarettes. As if the school sort of developed all sorts of uh, (laughs) antidotes for all sorts of addictions. But anyway, she came up to me in the refreshment room and asked me this question and said that she had tried to give up cigarettes a thousand times and failed every time. So I said to her, no, no. And then I remembered something that Leon McLaren, the man who founded the school, said to me. He said to me that when a person realizes that smoking cigarettes is a total and complete waste of time, they will give it up just like that. So I told her that. And then somebody interrupted the conversation, and I was conversing with somebody else, and when I looked around, she'd moved away. And about a year later, I was again in the refreshing room, and this lady came, a lady came up to me. Now, I didn't remember the incident at all. I have the memory of a goldfish, so I didn't remember this incident. And she came up to me and said, I gave them up. So I looked at her with sort of perplexed uh, look on my face, and she explained that she had given up cigarettes. And I said, excellent, excellent. And she said, you know, when you said to me, the story about what Leon McLaren had said, that when a person realizes that the smoking of cigarettes is a total and complete waste of time, they will give it up just like that. She said, I gave them up just like that. She gave up there and then as she heard the story. So that is where reason lights the mind with such a powerful knowledge that a habit is simply destroyed on the instant. And love can do it as well. Again, I'll tell a story it's love at a level. But a man that I knew in America had become a raving alcoholic. So, a horrendous alcoholic. And he was a married man and had a fantastic wife. And his first child was a daughter whom he loved. But he wanted a son. So, he was one of these sort of men that this meant an awful lot to him to have a son. And so, while waiting in the, wherever you do wait, I can't remember the name of the place. Now, anyway, wherever you wait while you're, in those days while your wife was producing the baby somewhere else, he suddenly looked up to heaven and he said to God, if you grant me a son, I will never drink again. And a boy was born 
and he never drank again. So the love of having a son gave him the sufficient strength to give up his addiction to alcohol. So reason and love will do it in relation to anything, whether it's addiction or fear or any of these things. But I'm going to give you then a way, since I can't give you an example in relation to fear. As regards fear, what's important, first of all, is to understand that all fear is irrational. It's all irrational. It's a bit like we're all insane. But those who are less insane lock away those who are more insane. Right? <laughs> so, uh, all fear is irrational. All fear is the product of imagination. So, like, the fear of death is complete imagination. Nobody knows what happens. Maybe as you go through the, you know, you come out the other side, the party begins. You know, somebody hands you a Carlsberg and says, come on in, right? <laughs> Who knows what happens? So the fear of death or the fear of anything is always imagination. And that which is imaginary can never actually harm you. So an imaginary burglar on the roof cannot actually rob you. Does that make sense? So that which is the product of imagination can never actually do you any harm. So what you do with fear, and I've said this before, but there is a cure to all fears, but the difficulty for human beings is that they're afraid of the cure, which is a bit ironic. And what you do is, whatever it is that you're afraid of, you do it. It's as simple as that. Whatever you're afraid to do. So if you're afraid of public speaking, then you speak in public. And you never, ever, ever avoid the situation. So you just simply say that if life presents me with whatever it is that I'm afraid of, I will meet it full on, every single time. And if you do that, the first time you meet it, it may be particularly horrendous as you meet it, but the second time you meet it, it will be less horrendous than the third time and the fourth time. Because fear always shrinks with experience. Since it is the product of imagination, then experience will always reduce it. So, and again, I've told this many, many times, but I used to have a horrendous fear of speaking in public. So that was overcome by speaking in public. Because the experience of speaking in public did not stand up to the, or did not compare at all in any way with the imagined speaking in public and how horrible that would be. So, as the experience grew and grew, the imaginary fear got less and less. And if you do that, then the fear, one day, it'll fall off just like a scab. And then there'll be no more fear. So, whatever it is that you're afraid of, meet it. That's why you have the, the common phrase, step over the fear. To step over the fear, you have to go right up to it and through it. And if you do that, it will dissolve. And if it's something that you meet regularly, you know, if, it's, if this is something that happens every ten years, okay, that might be a different matter. But if it happens quite frequently to you, this feeling of fear in relation to whatever it is, then you just meet the event. And if you meet it frequently enough, in a very short period of time, maybe a year, two years, it'll be gone. If it's something like, I'm afraid that a, a green Martian is going to abduct me, you know, and take me away in a spaceship and make me bear 25 children, something like this, well then, we're not going to be able to face that because there aren't any Martians to come and get you. So, one lady I know in the School of Philosophy who had 
a completely irrational fear in the sense that she couldn't, she was very fearful but couldn't relate it to anything in particular. She would wake up in the middle of the night sort of swamped in fear. So in that case, what was said to her was very simply, what I want you to do is I want you to watch the fear as if you were outside the fear and you're just looking at it. And I want you to become an absolute expert in fear by examining your own fear. Is that okay? And that's what she did. And then it didn't bother her anymore. Because she just watched it. When I used to have this horrendous fear about speaking in public, for about, well, it used to start maybe about three days in advance of a talk, I would start to produce these butterflies in my stomach. And what I learned to do was to look at them. Just watch them. You could feel them multiplying away. And as they, as they came closer and closer to say, speaking in public, they would, they would go berserk. And you used to just watch it. And you'd let it happen. And it's just a phenomenon. It just happens. So perspiration would come, tensions, loss of energy, all of that. Then it would pass. And if you, if you keep going through it, as I said, after a short, relatively short period of time, it won't come. It's a bit like a, a beggar knocking at your door. If you don't answer the door, after a while they stop knocking. And it's exactly the same with fear. If you don't answer that door, if you don't succumb to it, in the end, it'll leave you alone. You spoke about, let's call it internal fear. Yes. When it comes to external fear, say you suffer from a, an addiction, you're a drug addict. Yes. Or you are in debt at the moment, your yes. mortgage, or something similar, you're a care worker who has lost a large part of their income. How do you deal with that? as opposed to internal fear. Yeah, well, again, I have told this story before, so I'm going to just tell you what I did in a particular situation. I'm going back to the 70s now, and I was I had an overdraft of 30,000 punts, which was a sizable enough overdraft for the late 70s, right? Still a sizable enough overdraft, actually, but it was particularly sizable in the late 70s. And I was away on a long holiday with my wife and family, and the trouble with long holidays is you begin to worry about what's going on back home. So, about ten days into the holiday, the mind began to think of back home and began to speculate as to how business would be in the future. And while I could see a flow of income for about three months, it began to look dark beyond three months. <laughs> Until it ended up in pitch darkness and no income if I look six or nine months ahead. And this terrible fear descended on me. All right? So, as a philosopher, I did everything to avoid the fear. So I drank more wine. I, <laughs> I, I went for long swims. I did everything. And then eventually, I turned to a... I had a, I had a number of philosophy books with me. And eventually, I picked up a book. And... You know those, these magic times when you open a book and it falls open on a particular page and the page is written for you. So it fell open. Th this is a, a book from the East, all right? And it fell open on a particular page which told a story of a great empress called Leela. And Leela was grieving because she had lost her husband, the emperor. 
and she wished to be reunited with him. So she prayed and prayed and prayed that she would be reunited with her departed husband. And as the story went, the god of death, moved by her never-ending prayers, presented himself to her. And then he told Leela the following story. He told, he said, first of all, you will meet him again. You will meet the emperor again. In fact, you will marry him again. Now, this story involves reincarnation, all right? He said, the truth of the matter is you've actually been married six times already. Once or twice you were the man and he was the woman. Once you were very wealthy and you lived very long lives. All the time you were wiped out by the plague, and, you know, a day or two after the wedding. And he went through the six lives. Is that okay? And all of that. The purpose of the, the god of death explaining all this to Leela was to show that she was eternal. That there is no such thing as death. And with that, her grief was removed. Is that okay? And she became peaceful and happy again. Anyway, so I read this story now. It's about two pages in the book. And I read this story. So it takes about, say, 15, 20 minutes to read the story. And I thought, that's interesting. The question is, am I eternal? Am I? Forget about Leela. Am I eternal? So I asked it openly and sincerely and silently in my own mind. Am I eternal? And the resounding answer that came back was, yes, you are. And so the next question that arose in my mind was, what is a 30,000 pound overdraft in eternity? And the answer was, nothing. So I enjoyed the rest of my holiday. <laughs> right? And subsequently cleared the 30,000 overdraft and managed to borrow fast amounts more than that subsequently and all of that. But what you'll find is this, is when your image of yourself, I don't have a blackboard here now, but if you can imagine this, all right? If you take a problem, and let's say we say a problem is eight inches long, all right, and your self-image is very, very small, so that you see yourself as one inch tall, looking at an eight-inch problem, then it appears to be overwhelming and there's no solution. Now, let's say the problem actually is eight inches long, so there's no point in trying to imagine that it's only two inches long, because it is actually eight inches long. But you're not one inch tall. You can change your self-image. And if you see your self-image as 10 foot tall, then an 8 inch problem is no problem. When you find life appears to overwhelm you, what you find is that at that point in time, your image of your own strength and resources and all these things is very, very small. And the thing to do is to recover that sense of your natural stature and strength and capacity and capabilities. And again, I've said this before, but when I was younger, I worked in an accountancy practice and I worked with quite a number of very wealthy people. And they were at the beginning of their careers, people who subsequently became very wealthy. For so long as I was advising them, they seemed to be poverty-stricken. But anyway, there's no cause and effect there, by the way. But what I noticed, and let's say they were very, I'm thinking about three or four men, as it turned out, and they were very, very entrepreneurial by nature. Okay? But when I knew them, 
each of them was hopelessly insolvent. I mean, hopelessly, with negative in a very serious way. But in looking at them, none of them thought themselves poor at all. Now, not that they lived lavish lives or frivolous lives at all, but none of them thought themselves poor. And what I realized that each man saw himself as a man wealthy in talent, energy, skill, capacity, all these sort of things. Albeit with no money. You can have a billion pounds and think yourself a poor man. And you can have very little money and think yourself a very rich man. It's all to do with your self-image. And one inch is tall is not a true self-image. A human being is a great, great creation. You mentioned about the your one inch tall, yes. the eight inch problem. Say you have family. How do you bring them into getting up to ten inches tall and yes. the eight inch problem? Well, again, there are said to be that if you look at all the ideas you have about yourself, it is said that you can categorize them into two categories. All right? And they are that I am lovable and I am capable, or I'm not lovable and I'm not capable. There is a gender bias. It's not universal now, but there's a gender bias. The male tends to be challenged by images of incapability, which can make him overly ambitious and aggressive and all these things. And the female can have ideas of not being lovable and makes then excessive efforts to be attractive or to attract. Is that okay? Most men consider themselves as completely and totally lovable. So there's no need to make any efforts at all. <laughs> you know, aftershave is for sissies type of thing, right? <laughs> so, so why wouldn't they love me as I am? But if we just leave out that gender, and, and it's only a bias, it's not a universal. So uh, if you're a father, the thing that you need to help your children develop, no, sorry, not develop, retain, because every child innately believes in its own lovability and believes in its own capability. That's why the two-year-old will say, can I drive the car? It doesn't think, hang on a second, I've only got, you know, one foot leg type of thing. It believes it can do anything, absolutely anything. And it also believes it's totally lovable. That's why it makes no efforts to be lovable. And that's why we do love them so much, because they make no efforts to be lovable. So the two things are, I am lovable and I am capable, or I'm not lovable and I'm not capable. And let's say, if you are a father of children, just observe them. And any time you hear that idea, I can't do this or I'm no good at that, then you tell them that you are a remarkably capable man. Now, they may not be capable at everything, but everybody is capable of greatness in certain areas. Some may be on a rugby pitch, others may be, you know, in commerce or whatever it is. And the other thing is you tell them that they are absolutely lovable. Now, you not only say it, you have to demonstrate it. And I don't mean with, you know, we're going to Euro Disney for the 15th time this year. I don't mean like that. But you show that they are lovable, i.e. that irrespective of their behavior, good or bad, you love them. When my eldest daughter was 13, 
I had a long conversation with her. And I said, there's one thing I want you to know. I want you to know that I love you. And that there is nothing that you can ever do that will stop me loving you. Now, there are many things that you can and most likely will do that will cause me to be irritated or angry, but I will never, ever, ever stop loving you. And, now, anyway, 13 years later she got married, but she, on her wedding day, and we were driving in the car to the church, she said, you know, Dad, I remember when you said that to me, and I never forgot it. And it meant a lot to me. Or it means a lot to me. So that's what you do. You'll find that people do begin to develop at a very, after, you know, after maybe three or four, they begin to develop ideas that they're not capable. Unfortunately, they compare themselves to older brothers and sisters. And the older brother can, you know, whatever it is, he can ride the bicycle and I can't ride the bicycle. So they tend not to take into account years and physical development. And they also then begin to compare themselves to other people. So they realize that, you know, that somebody else is better looking than them or something like that. Or somebody has a natural excellence in mathematics, whereas they don't have. But again, with your children, what you tell a child, and by the way, it applies to yourself as well now. And if you don't practice it on yourself, then your words will be hollow to the child. But what you do do is you never, ever, ever compare a child with anybody else. That's the first thing you do. And you never allow a child to compare itself with anybody else. This is false competition. There is such a thing as true competition. And true competition is with yourself. Is that okay? So that you try to be a better man tomorrow than you were today. So all competition is me and me. So it's like there's one guy who wants to lie in the bed and there's another part of the being that says he has to get out of the bed. It just depends who's going to win. So when the child gets to a certain age, you can explain this to them about competition. What is real competition? And then what that does is it leads to a marvellous situation where till your last breath, you're seeking to magnify your own glory or develop your talents or attributes. So there's no retirement for a human being. There may be a retirement for an engineer, but not for a human being. So Shane, just a very quick question. In the whole aspect of discipline, some people say, I want to form a good habit or I want to cease a bad habit. Yes. Some people are successful and some fail at that. What's the key ingredient at either following a good habit or breaking a bad one? It's the desire for improvement. That's the key. You know, when I was about 12 years of age, let's say my father was 52, and he was overweight, and I promised myself, never, never will I have a fat belly. I, you know, I love myself too much to have a fat belly. Anyway, not only did I love myself too much, but I loved food too much subsequently, and put on vast quantities of weight, And even though I could say, oh, I'd love to be slim, I didn't love it enough. I loved chips more. (laughs) And I loved chocolate more and all these sort of things. So, you have to get your values right. Let's say you're watching television, all right? And you've got the remote control. 
and there's two programs, you think, I'd like to see that, I'd like to see that, then you're stuck. But let's say in my case, it's rugby and strictly come dancing. Right, they're the two possibilities. There is no hesitation, right? No hesitation at all. I tell my wife, it's not on, and I watch the rugby. <laughs> they must have cancelled the show, right? Because there, there's no hesitation because, let's say, the, the so-called attraction to rugby is so strong that nothing distracts. So all the strength of the being can go into the fulfillment of that desire. So that's what you have to do. You have to strongly desire to have a healthy body more than you want to have excess food. If you do, there's no problem. If it's only a marginal difference, you've no chance. So the key is to adopt true values. True values. So you should reflect on that and say, you know, for example, what sort of a man or a woman do I want to be? How would I wish to be remembered? Or, if you don't want to think that far ahead, how would I like to be seen? Or how would I wish for people to talk about me if they were to talk about me? How would I wish for them to describe me? And then really value that. And if you do value it, you'll find that all the energy and strength and discipline is there to enact it. Again, I've told this before, but Pavarotti obviously has a glorious voice, and I've always envied people who sing beautifully. But I read an article about Pavarotti where he was asked how much did he practice. It never actually really crossed my mind that if you had a voice that excellent, that you'd have to practice at all. Anyway, he said that he practiced seven hours a day. So any desire to be an opera singer went right out the window there, because all I want to do is perform and have people looking at me with loving eyes. The idea of practicing by myself in a studio, forget that. Anyway, the interviewer asked him, what do you do for those seven hours? And he said, well, for three of those seven hours, I go up and down the scales. So I just couldn't imagine anything worse than that now. Up and down the scales for three hours. But he could. And this lady interviewer asked him, how do you do it? And he said, because I consider this voice a gift from God, and it is my responsibility to present it to the world in its most excellent condition. If that's what's in your heart, you can go up and down the scales for three hours. It's not a problem. If you're just me, who'd like a little bit of adulation, not just. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Just about what you are talking about earlier on, about the actual discipline, and you mentioned that there was seven kind of virtues or seven practices. Seven practices, yes. Yeah. As soon as I hear the word discipline, I think of things like the army and school and exactly. <laughs> communism and all, all these kind of bad things. So Absolutely. I was surprised, surprised to hear the word mentioned. But my question is, do you think there can be too much discipline? Oh, yes, Absolutely. The first thing is, what we don't like, just to pick up your first point, what we don't like is discipline being imposed on us by another. So we don't like the school teacher telling us what to do, or a father, or a mother, or in the army. We don't like that idea, all right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, because there is a sense of, I am a free man, and therefore I don't want to be told what to do and when to do it and how to do it. All right? So there is, again, this sense of self-pride or self-dignity 
or self-respect, which rebels against a discipline being imposed by another. But the discipline we're talking about is an inner discipline. It's not coming from another source. It's coming from oneself, where there is a desire to, say, improve oneself or reveal oneself to the world more gloriously or whatever. And for that, you're willing to undertake a discipline. So that's the first point. So true discipline is never imposed from outside, but is naturally taken on from inside for a better result. So that's the first aspect. The second thing to realize is that false discipline always restricts you. So it's like your father saying, you can't go out and you can't do this and you can't do that. So false discipline always restricts you. But true discipline leads to freedom. So let's say you've never taken up the discipline of swimming. Then you're not free to go into the water. You're confined to the land. But if you take up the discipline of swimming, you can go into the water and you can stand on the land. So true discipline will always expand your life and grant you greater freedom, freedom of movement, freedom of expression. So that's the second aspect of discipline. The third thing then, can there be too much discipline? Absolutely. Because disciplines are related to the body, mind and heart. And therefore, since the body, mind and heart are limited, then every discipline must have a measure. If it goes beyond the measure, you don't get the benefit from the discipline. And again, if I can just tell this humorous story, which I have told a couple of times, but there was an Indian sage came to Europe about 30 years ago, I think, called Maharaj. He was a very young boy. and he, Anyway, he gained an awful lot of followers. But amongst those who followed him, a very strong idea developed about diet, about the food diet. All right? And it was all, I can't even remember the, the terminology, but it was all macro this and micro that and all sorts of things, right? So it got very, very strict. And basically, if you were seen eating a banana, so you were damned for eternally and all of this. So it got horrendously tight and narrow and divisive and all of that. And this became known to this particular sage, the Maharaj, and he, he was having a world conference in Germany. So there was this colossal area, and I don't know whether it was 30,000 people had come to gather to hear him speak at this annual convention. And, now, and this man is a vegetarian, is that all right? So anyway, so he walks out onto the stage with a Big Mac, and he eats it in front of the 30,000 followers. And that was the end of the insane levels of discipline as regards eating. Because they had lost the measure of it. Does that make sense? When it gets excessive, then what you find is you get things like puritanical ideas, very strong ideas of right and wrong, of sin, and all these, you know, not useful concepts. And so there'll be a lot of guilt and repression and all of that. And that's why... I did say something, and it's a quote from the Shankaracharya. He says, the human way is the middle way. So neither extreme. So not excessive dieting nor gluttony. Just the middle way. So if you are going to be disciplined, either with regard to the body, the mind, or the heart, you are gentle with it. You know, let's say you, you haven't been to a gymnasium and you're unfit. On the first day, you don't go in and say, where's the heaviest weights there now? I'm determined to get fit. You take something which stretches you 
a bit, but doesn't overwhelm your body. And you work with that, and then a certain strength builds up in the arms and legs or whatever, and then you, you add another kilo or a couple of kilos or whatever it is, and slowly but surely, always just stretching yourself beyond the current level, but never to the point of where it's got this terrible intensity to it, or extremity to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's just like sometimes if you have thoughts, it's very hard to actually discipline the thoughts that you have. If you think a certain way and continue thinking that way, it's very hard to completely discipline your mind to stay on that one thought all of the time because there's so many other factors that come into play that would be pulling your mind from one Absolutely. side and then pulling your mind back again. But now I was thinking this initially. Yes. You probably find yourself coming back. So sometimes I think if you get too disciplined with the way that you actually think or with the way that you're actually making your mind think, you can get very frustrated with the way the whole thing really like. Yeah, no, absolutely. But again, you see, what we do is we get fixated with success and failure, not with the discipline. So if you're going to count all the times you fail, you're just going to get frustrated. The idea is, let's say you go on a, a food diet, which restricts the amount you, you intake, right? And then you break out and gorge yourself on profiteroles or whatever it is. What tends to happen is a sense of, I'm defeated or a sense of self-disgust or something like that arises, and then we abandon the diet. There, there's no blooming point. Here, give me another plate, right? And put cream on them this time, right? I might as well really enjoy them. That's one way to do it. And then you blow it all. But the real way to do it is every time you fall, you pick yourself up. And you never count how many times you fall. If you're on a diet and you break the diet, you say, okay, tomorrow I shall diet. So you keep it light. What tends to happen is we do an awful lot of counting. So people will do this. They say, and we just again make it a food diet. I've been on a diet 21 days. My God, it seems like eternity. I deserve a reward. <laughs> you know, one magnum. That's all. Right? So that's what we do. We count, but never count. You know, the way to give up cigarettes is just not to have the next one. That's the simple way to do it. You only have to give up one cigarette. The next one. And if you do that, you'll never smoke again. But if you try to imagine 30 years or 50 years without cigarettes, it'll overwhelm you. So, discipline is a very intelligent thing. Very, very intelligent. And you must work with your own body, mind and heart. So, that's why, you know, reading a book about disciplines and what somebody else did, that might have been appropriate for their body, their mind or their heart. But you've got to come to understand your body, mind and heart and what would work for it. So, that's what I would say. This is a question, I suppose, about discipline. I'll give you an example. I'm in the club. Last week we met. We, as a club, we had an event. Went very well. Everyone shook hands, but one person didn't shake my hands. One of the more senior members in the club. So we're meeting next week now, or this Friday coming. And like it's kind of me, during the week I'm thinking, oh, that person was rude to me. I should have talked to him. I should have said something, but he's a senior member in the club. And it's kind of annoying me, the fact that he, he was rude to me. But all, what's more important is that he, it's in my head during the week, thinking of what will I say to him, what will I not say to him. The thing is, how do I have the discipline to say, no, I want to f forget about that, not get out of my head. And also, when I meet him this Friday, should I really 
give out to him and say, you're rude to me. He shouldn't have done that. Or say, well, he's a senior member of the club. If he doesn't want, maybe he sees me as a new member. Maybe he doesn't want to shake my hand, whatever. Yeah. That's his choice. But in the meantime, it's kind of eating me up during the yeah. week. <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. Absolutely. Well, first of all, whatever you plan to do in this room now is not what you actually do on the night. So the best way to do it is to just see how it unfolds. There is the possibility that you did offend the man. You just don't know how you offended them. So I imagine this is how I would do it anyway. I would meet the man and I would greet him. And if it's normal to extend your hand and shake hands, I would extend my hand. If he refuses to shake it a second time, then he's definitely carrying something. There's something between you and him. You may not be responsible, but he's definitely got something between you and him. So then I would say, look, I'm not aware of any offence that I've caused you, but if I have, I'd like to apologise for or I'd like to deal with it or eliminate it. And he might refuse that, and that's fine. And if he does refuse it, you'll say, well, there is no offence on this side. So the important thing is this. You can't be master of another man's heart or mind, but you can be master of your own. So, and we just assume that he's just a badly behaved man. In other words, you haven't offended him in truth. If he behaves badly, then you behave excellently. The way the Shankaracharya put it is, he says, to fight a devil, you don't have to become a devil. So you should always retain your own standards. So how do you wish to be? How do you wish to behave to other people? Now, what you decide is, that is how I'm going to present myself to the world. So I'm going to present myself to the world as a mannerly, kind open-hearted, etc., etc., person. The key is that this is how you present yourself to everybody, not just to nice people. So, you present a kind, open-hearted, generous man even to a nasty, mean-hearted, small man. So, don't let somebody who is operating in ignorance cause you to change your behaviour. Be a free man. In other words, be free to be yourself. And you will lose nothing by that. This doesn't mean that you're sort of, you know, sucking up to him or or that sort of thing, or you lose any dignity. You simply present yourself as you wish to present yourself to the world. And he'll either accept that or not. The fact of the matter is, if you present yourself in a good way, i.e. in a loving way, in a reasonable way, then there's a far greater chance of him dropping whatever it is that he's holding. Love does melt people's hearts, you know? And reason also does dissolve impediments that are held in the heart and the mind. So be a reasonable, loving man to this man, and it's up to him whether he wishes to let go whatever it is that's making him miserable. It's not useful to try and anticipate the 47,000 different ways this might unfold, because... It's bound to turn out different. So all you can do is, as I said, you can take a principle, like, I will simply be myself and not be affected by how he has behaved or how he might behave this Friday or whenever it is at your meet. So you can take that as a principle. How that is expressed will be determined in the moment. And you don't have to anticipate it. If you anticipate it, you rehearse it. If you rehearse it, it will be artificial. And therefore, you won't be yourself. So just be yourself with this man. You were talking about finding your bliss. Yes. 
how would you go about doing that? Finding your own bliss. Yeah. Literally, it reveals itself. So, for example, like an awful lot of television sets, my television, or our television set has a thousand channels on it. Right, or maybe even more, I don't know. But there are a few channels that I will go to, like Sky Sports and Bloomberg and a few things like that. Because that's where my bliss is. Does that make sense? What you'll find is your bliss, i.e. that which naturally allows you to be blissful, you are naturally drawn to. So when you have nothing to do, what do you like to do? What would you do? If you go into a bookshop, which shelves do you go to? There are some people who go to the aeronautical section. There are some who go to the beekeeping section. But you will go to a particular section because there you become alive, you become bright, and you become blissful. So it's only a matter of observation. In the same way that you would with a diet. You know, there are certain foods that perhaps are not conducive to you eating. So if you eat them and the next day you feel awful, well, don't eat them again. And then there are other foods that after you eat, you feel very good and full of energy and you've, you've delighted in the meal. Well, eat plenty of that food. So that which naturally delights you. If you were a young boy, and I'm not saying that you were less than a young boy, but if, if you were a young boy and I was your father, what I would do is I would expose you to all of the world. So I'd expose you to art and music and science and all the various sports and all the various activities and then observe those that you wish to repeat, or those that you are naturally drawn to, and then would make that available to you. You take a child who goes to school, he might be presented with eight or nine or ten subjects. Now, if we ignore a desire for power and money and things like that, his mind and heart would be naturally drawn to particular subjects. Albeit the school may play ten sports, there'll be one that he or she would wish to play. So it's through self-observation that you'll see what you're naturally drawn to. Unfortunately, what we do is we introduce into our lives have-to. And so many have-tos. But no little three-year-old says, look, oh, I have to play today. You know, and I have to eat a lollipop. But we introduce that terrible burden of having to. And you should only do what you love to. And that doesn't mean that you're just going to, you know, lie down on the couch and somebody will pop grapes into your mouth all day long. <laughs> they don't make women like that anymore. <laughs> that was the tragedy of the Roman Empire coming to an end. <laughs> it won't be like that. It won't be free-for-all licentiousness. Because even that would become painful and boring in the end. But there are those things that you'll never want to retire from. So, if I just take an example, and this isn't uh, true in my life, but I do happen to love rugby, right? So, of all the sports, that one just brightens me, okay? 
And so when I played rugby, I played for as long as the people wouldn't laugh at me running around on a pitch. So at about age 35, they did start to snigger rather loudly, and I gave up. Now, perhaps if I had even been a greater lover of rugby, then I would have become a coach of a team. Not being able to play any more, I would have liked to have developed the talents of others in that game out of love for the game. And then a time would come when you wouldn't be able to coach and then you would be a spectator. But you would never think, well, I don't want to watch, I don't want to have any part to play with rugby anymore. It's in your being and it will be there till the day you die. How you express it might change from player to coach to spectator. So you take a lot of jobs, people look forward to retiring from them. Does that make sense? The 60, they, you know, or even earlier. And some people even wish a sort of a minor illness on themselves so they could sort of retire with disability benefit early on. But if you do what you really love to do, then you'll never retire from it. It's what you get out of bed for. So th- does that answer your question at all? Okay. It's just wondering if I've heard correctly you're saying about an activity making you blissful. I'm wondering is it alright to find that people make you blissful in any activity? Yes, uh, what it said is that actions done well make you blissful. So again, I've used this example before, but any action you execute well brings a natural joy or satisfaction. So if I went to this board here, this paper here, and I attempted to draw a circle, and it came out particularly well, there may be both an inner smile and an external smile as I gaze at it admiringly. If you're 20 feet away from a waste paper basket and you throw a piece of paper at it and it goes in, you know that sense of satisfaction from something well done. But you need to be with people. So if you're with somebody and you're not really listening to them and your mind is wandering off and all those sort of things, well then that meeting with that person will not yield bliss. But if you really attend to them and you connect with them, then of course it will. So that's why one of the disciplines is to pay full attention. What we try to do is we try to find things that are interesting that we will pay full attention to. But the key is to pay full attention to everything, then you'll find everything interesting. There is nothing boring in this world. It's all interesting, as long as you fully attend to it. And in fully attending to it, you give it all of yourself, and in giving all of yourself to it, you get all back. If you give very little of yourself to something, you get very little back. In one way, the satisfaction you get from any action or person is determined by how much of yourself you give to it. If you think of all those actions that yield most satisfaction or most bliss to you or those people whose company you enjoy most, you will find that they are the people or the actions you give most of yourself to when you're with them. So it's actually nothing to do with the other person. It's to do how much you give to that. This is why people can get immense satisfaction from 
activities that we can't comprehend. So somebody says to you, I'm into moth collecting. And you think, oh, for God's sake. You know, how could you enjoy impaling dead insects to, you know, large pieces of paper? Yes, it will yield immense satisfaction if you fully attend. Or bird watching. You know, I saw a speckled X, Y, or Z last night after five hours of staring through binoculars. But if you really attend, yes, it yields full satisfaction. So, the key is to give yourself fully. And because our minds are now ill-disciplined, our minds tend to wander an awful lot. So even when somebody's talking to us, they wander off. Or, do you ever, you know, do this, you sort of think, um, it's two minutes to six, and I must listen to the news now. So I must turn on the radio in two minutes' time. And the next time you come out of your dream, it's twenty-five past six. You know? So, we need to discipline our minds so that they naturally attend. Now, not a forced attention, not a staring, not a pressurized attention, but a natural resting your attention where it's meant to be. That takes discipline until it is naturalized. When it is naturalized, it just happens because it is now your nature. Does that answer your question? Yeah, very good. You mentioned uh, that we should have a systematic approach and that we should be working uh, with discipline and uh, towards and putting effort into getting the desired result. And yet, on the other hand, you mentioned that we should be unattached. So is there any contradiction there that you're, you're working, putting the effort in, trying hard to get a, a certain result, and yet we have to be unattached as well? No, well, you've added a few words there that I think I didn't say, and if I did say them, then I'm going to withdraw them, right? You're not putting the effort into the result. You're putting the effort into the action. If the action is executed perfectly, the result takes care of itself. So you need never consider a result when executing an action. Does that make sense? Are we not acting with a result in mind? No, no. You act with execution in mind, not the outcome. If the attention goes to the outcome, then some of it must be taken away from the execution of the action. And if some attention is taken away from the execution of the action, then the execution of the action must suffer. Sometimes you see in a very... where there's a lot at stake in a sport. So, a penalty in the 90th minute, or, you know, a golf shot to win the Ryder Cup. And you see the burden overcoming the athlete as it begins to think of the outcome. And sometimes what you see, let's say if it's golf, the person steps away, steps away, lets it all go and comes back again. And then they play it as a shot. Not a shot to win the Ryder Cup, but a shot. So that's the key. That is the key. The attention should be 100% where the action is being executed. Not partially on where the action is being executed and partially on the outcome. The outcome is in the future. When you hit a snooker ball and it hits off three cushions, four other balls, and hits the ball and the ball goes into the thingy bob, all that was predetermined at the point you hit the snooker ball, the white ball. 
it's all determined there. Everything else follows automatically, wherever the ball goes. So you need not worry about anything else. What happens to us is we either try to imagine future outcomes, which then destroys our ability to execute the action, or as we're executing the action, the mind wanders a bit. Like in golf, a person lifts their head as they hit the ball. Well, the whole idea is everything must stay right here. But they do look at the hole, they look at the flag before they they shoot. Yes, and then they withdraw it. Alright? It wouldn't be useful if you found yourself facing the wrong way, saying, I'm practicing philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) it is good to know where the hole is. But, and that's what you do. You know, say, again, if you take in rugby, you watch the guy, you know, and they all have these now appallingly frightening stares. You know, they sort of... <laughs> they do all sorts of appalling things with their faces. But watch them. They're not looking at the crowd. They're looking between the posts. And they look and they look and they look. And then they withdraw. Do you recognize that? The key... It's fine to look, but for the purpose of the execution, you must withdraw. There's no problem with the looking, either. Like, if an architect wishes to design a house, he has to envisage in his or her mind the completed house. But let's say he's the architect and the builder, right? First of all, he stands on the land, and he envisages the completed house. And let's say he gets that right and it's all done in drawings. Then he gets out a pickaxe and he starts to dig here. He's no longer looking at the completed house. He's digging here. You have to be very careful about the desire for a result. Your responsibility is to execute the action. And if you're a religious man, God determines the outcome. All you can do is kick the ball. If a pigeon happens to fly past just as you kick it, <laughs> let God take the rap for it. <laughs> I've forgotten actually what I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah. But it's, there's something to do with attention and awareness. There can be great confusion or a bit, the difference between attention and awareness. Yes. So, in relation to this, I don't know where that would fit into discipline, but. If you could just extend that for me, please. Well, awareness is just another word for consciousness. So, say, in the Vedic tradition, the word that is tended to be used is consciousness. In the Buddhist tradition, it tends to be awareness. But they're synonymous, all right? So, awareness is the natural state of yourself, your true self. Attention is a state of the mind. Awareness is the state of the self. The self doesn't have alternative states. So, the self is always aware. But the mind can attend and not attend. But it is possible for you to be aware that you're not attending. Does that make sense? Because you do it with driving. You suddenly think, God, I'm not attending. And you snap out of it and you attend. So, There is awareness of attention and there's awareness of non-attention. But there's no such thing as non-awareness. Awareness is your natural state. The human being is 
conscious. He is consciousness. He's never not consciousness. But the mind, because it belongs to the creation, has two possibilities, to be attentive or lacking in attention. Discipline is what brings it to a natural state of attention. It's a bit like this. I'm going to draw it on this. If you take that the self is the source of all, and Jesus' description of man was that he was the light of the world. So that light is the light of the self. The self shines. It is light. It shines. Consciousness shines. And it shines into the heart. And if it shines into the heart, it fills it with joy and happiness and love. And then that passes through the heart into the mind. And then the mind shines with clarity and decisiveness and reason and principle and knowledge and all these wonderful things. And if that shines through the mind, then it shines into the body. And the body is full of health and it's agile and it has a sort of a... You know the way when you feel like skipping, even though you're over 21 and three quarters, you feel like skipping and there's a sort of a lightness in your body. You haven't lost any weight, but there's a sort of a lightness in your step. The body does live in the present moment. That, okay, it can't actually wander into the past and the future. The self only lives in the present moment because it can't wander into the past and the future. But the heart and the mind can wander into the past and the future. And when they do, they become dark. They don't receive the light. So they become dark. Like as if you were disconnected from the central generating station. Then your house becomes dark. So, if you look at somebody, there are some people you look at them and there's a natural brightness about their being. And that is an indication of this connection. And if there's a dullness of their being, if you come into somebody and they've been watching television for a number of hours there's a sort of a you know and they're drooling out of one side of their mouth (laughs) there's a sort of a dullness about their being because the heart is all over the place and the mind is perhaps all over the place when the mind is attentive it is in the present moment being attentive in the present moment it connects with the self and becomes bright and intelligent again Sometimes people wonder about whether, you know, they might think, well, I'm not particularly intelligent. It's not a very common thought for most people, but they might just think that I'm not particularly intelligent. Intelligence, in a way, is not true to say there is a thing called IQ. What there is is either presence of mind or lack of presence of mind. When there is presence of mind, you are intelligent. Every one of us has done brilliant things. Some of us very, very, very rarely, but we've at least done it once in our life, right? We said something incredibly witty, or we understood something in a flash, or whatever it was. The key to intelligence in the mind is for the light of the self to shine in it. In the same way, we've all been incredibly loving at moments. We have done the generous deed. We've been kind, compassionate. And we've also been selfish and nasty and all of these wonderful things. The key to your heart being full of love and joy and happiness is to be in the present moment and then the light of the self naturally shines. So philosophy does no work here. There's no work on the self at all. 
there's a, a small amount of work done on the body. So don't eat too much, don't eat too little, don't drink too much, too little. Not an awful lot. It's very easy to get this into a true shape. I don't mean like Kate Moss type shape now, just true shape in a sense. It's not a burden to you. Alright, it's a useful vehicle to occupy. But all the work is to get this into this line. So all philosophy works in this subtle world, the world of heart and mind. There was a young girl today, one Wimbledon, blonde-haired, very young girl. Yes. And after, I didn't hear her name or what she won, she was completely focused, completely conscious, and in the present. And even though her goal was probably the one, her expression was only on the here and now. Absolutely. And the attention of putting the bat. Exactly. So focused. Whenever she won, she just collapsed on the ground. And her expression was overwhelming because she was all of that. No, you often find that. If the discipline was totally naturalised, and I don't want to take away from this lady's great efforts now, but if it was totally natural, there wouldn't be that collapse afterwards. But where it still has a lot of effort in it, you often find the athlete collapsing at the end and overcome with emotion. Up to that moment, they're completely disciplined, focused, but then the final whistle goes and they burst into tears and fall on the ground. But just to tell you a story, Martina Navratilova, right, I think has won at Wimbledon more than any other female, either seven, eight or nine times. What she did was she had a tennis ball where the sink was, where the taps on the sink were. She had one where the handle on the loo was. She had one on the door handle of the loo. She had one on the front door handle. She had one on the top of the steering wheel. She had one where the cooker was. Right? A tennis ball. And the idea was to keep putting the image of the tennis ball in her mind so that her mind always was on the tennis ball. So when she went out onto the court the mind naturally went to where the ball was. And if you see some of these fantastic sports photographs, what you see is that incredible piercing gaze of the sportsman following the ball. Let's say it's a ball game. It's a remarkable thing. If somebody said to me, well, I'd love to be a loving person, well, then let your heart be in the present moment. Somebody said to me, I'd like to be much more efficient and intelligent and not... Be free from error. Let your mind be in the present moment. All love, all happiness, all knowledge is presented to the human being in the present moment. So bring your heart and mind into the present moment and you'll never find life overwhelms you or there's too much happening to you. You're bigger than the event that's in front of you there and then. If your heart and mind are in the present moment. I'm just wondering, you were talking about the end result and not focusing on the end result. I'm just thinking of the Donegal manager for the GAA football. I'm wondering where the law of attraction comes in here. He said that he focused on the Sam Maguire Cup in the front of the coach. That's what he thought about and pictured it in his mind all the time up until he played the game and then, of course... He won the game. Story tells itself. I'm just wondering where the law of attraction comes into it. I always consider that the action itself 
determines the discipline. It does. Do we have to consider what the end result is first? You have to have some vision there or something that you're aiming at and then you can concentrate on whatever it is that you need to do to get exactly. to there. The interesting thing is this. I'm going to give you a philosophical answer, right? Because since this is a philosophical meeting. In the world, in the material world, we're very concerned about the outcome. About the winning the Maguire Cup or not winning it. Right? In philosophy, the question you ask yourself is, why am I playing? For what purpose am I playing? Am I playing for my own glory? Am I playing for the happiness of others? Is it for the glory of God if I happen to be a religious person? That's the much, much, much more important question. Have you ever gone to, a, say, a concert, we'll make it a pop concert, and it was very obvious that the group or the singer was only interested in themselves and the money they were getting? And sometimes you come across a real entertainer and they're there for the audience. Do you recognize that? There for the audience. Well, that is the higher motivation. The first thing to get right is the motivation for the action. So, and I just make it so the, the manager of the Donegal team could be visualizing the Maguire Cup there so that he is considered to be a great manager. Or he could be doing it for the team. Or he could be doing it for the county. Or he could be doing it for Gaelic football. He could be doing it for this generation of spectators. He could be doing it for future generations. You can make the vision, the motivation, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So Nelson Mandela, if you will say, may have envisaged building a new South Africa for South Africans for a thousand years. A T-shirt might be only thinking of four years, a five-year term. Will it get him back again? Other people might think a thousand years. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. So, in a way, that's the heart. For what reason are you undertaking the action? Then is, what is the action? So, let's say it is to win the Sam Maguire Cup. So, that's fine. That's fine. It's fine to hold that in mind. That is the end goal. I haven't got that clarified in your mind. You withdraw from that and now you start kicking a ball between the posts and getting fit and creating harmony in the team and motivating people and uplifting them. There's lots of people who've sat on their couches and, I mean, I've sat on my couch and dreamt about playing for Ireland in rugby. I never got the call. <laughs> right? I left my phone number everywhere. <laughs> but I never got the call. Now, maybe if I'd gone outside and practiced and kicked the ball a bit more often and trained a bit more often, there might have been a greater chance of getting the call. Does that make sense? Visualization is only useful if it is then withdrawn from and all the attention is given to the execution of the action. Because we can all do the visualization bit. I have made my speech at the United Nations they have applauded, by the way. <laughs> that is now imagination. It'd be only true to call something visualization if it then turns into action.
Otherwise, it's just imagination. It's just daydreaming. Does that make sense or it doesn't make sense? No, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've told this story before, but there was a man who asked the question of the head of the School of Philosophy worldwide, and he said, his question was about his son, who was trying to consider (coughs) what he should study. And the son was considering whether he should study law, or he would study business, or he would do a combined legal or law business degree. And the father, out of a natural devotion to his son, put that question to the head of the School of Philosophy worldwide. And the head of the School of Philosophy worldwide said, the important question for your son is not whether he does law or does business, but what sort of a man is he going to be? That's the real question for your son. Because when he answers that question, then you can decide that he's going to be that sort of man (coughs) expressed through law or expressed through business. (coughs) It's much more important to decide that you're going to be an honest banker than you're going to be a banker. And that is the real question for, let's say, a 16-year-old. Having gone through 16 years of childhood and having everything showered on you in every way possible, you are then called into adulthood. And then you have to decide, how am I going to stand? Or where am I going to stand in this world? And with whom? And for what? There's a delightful story which, when I picture it, tears come to my eyes. But it was a program about Martin Luther King Jr. In the program, there was a very, very, very old black man. So he was in his 70s or 80s. And when he spoke about Martin Luther King Jr., he became very emotional, with evident love for Martin Luther King Jr. They show a film clip of Martin Luther King Jr. marching, and this man, as a 25 or a 30-year-old, marching with him. And with tears streaming down his eyes as he tells this, he says, I am so proud that I walked with that man. See, that's the important. Who do you walk with? And for what reason? When you get that right, the rest of it's very simple to work out. Very, very simple to work out. So what sort of a man or a woman are you going to be? Where are you going to take your stand in life? For whose sake will I live? Will I live for me? Will I live for me and mine? Like myself, my wife, my children, and a few relatives. Will I live for this country? Will I live for this region, you know, the European region? Will I live for humanity? Will I live for the universe? These are great, great questions. And every 16-year-old should, in a way, not be forced, but be encouraged to face those questions. And having answered those questions is then, okay, now will I do it as a banker, (coughs) or a legal man, or an accountant, or a road sweeper, or an artist or whatever. But answer the important questions first. And the others are so easy to answer them. But we skip all those ones. Start looking at our pension schemes as we decide our careers. (laughs) Does that make sense? It's such a tragedy. Imagine if Leonardo da Vinci had worried about will anybody like the paintings? I wonder should I start? (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe they won't like them, so I won't bother. 
you know. Thank you very much, Dave.